Welcome to the Nixon Now podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis of the Richard Nixon Foundation. How did the Republican Party evolve ideologically in America over the half-past century? Our guest today explores this question through the lives of four of its leaders, Richard Nixon, Nelson Rockefeller, Barry Goldwater, and Ronald Reagan. Donald Critchlow is professor of history and director of the Center for Political Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and the founding president of the Institute for Political History. He is the author of many books, including Phyllis Schlafly and Grassroots Conservatism, A Woman's Crusade, The Conservative Ascendancy, How the GOP Right Made Made Political History, and Future Right, Forging a New Republican Majority. The book he'll talk about today is called Republican Character from Nixon to Reagan, which Nixon biographer and former Newsweek editor Evan Thomas calls engagingly wrought, persuasive, and highly relevant to today's political scene. Dr. Krishlow, welcome. Well, thank you very much for uh, having me today. Um, Just to kind of start off, uh, why did you decide to undertake the project of writing this book? Uh, Yes, uh, well, I've uh, spent a a good deal of my career writing about Republican uh, politics. And in my research, I discovered a number of uh, strange alliances between uh, the four uh, presidential uh, contenders I write about, Richard Nixon, Gary Goldwater, Nelson Rockefeller, and Ronald Reagan. And um, it, and uh, these alliances didn't make a lot of sense uh, ideologically. Uh, and uh, it had to do with kind of the practical uh, politics. So I decided to explore... Uh, through their careers and their presidential uh, campaigns, uh, kind of the twists and turns and uneasy alliances they made in, in seeking the uh, the White House. The origins of, of all of this, we're kind of looking at uh, post-World uh, War II uh, GOP, Republican Party. Uh, could, could you give a sense of how the GOP was ideolo- ideologically aligned at the end of World War II? At the end of uh, World War II, the uh, Republican Party was uh, set on on trying to win the uh, White House, uh, but it was uh, a divided party, and the and this division was going to uh, increase, and the division was over how to deal with uh, the New Deal, welfare, and administrative state. There were some Republicans that wanted to. Uh, accept uh, the New Deal uh, and try to go and uh, simulate uh, a liberal uh, message. And then increasingly in the uh, Sun Belt and the West, uh, there were those who wanted to uh, set forth a stronger what they saw as a Republican uh, program based around uh, free market, pro-capitalist, and political liberty uh, issues. So these uh, tensions were going to, these ideological tensions were going to play out for the next uh, 30 years in the uh, Republican Party. But more importantly, there was an issue of how to win elections. So you got this tension between ideological principle and uh, practical uh, politics that that was a question of becoming political opportunism. So between principle and opportunism, there was a wide uh, uh, spectrum in which which way politicians uh, seeking the White House and the Republican nomination were going to uh, proceed. 
Now, you talk about the faction. What were the, what were the principal ideological roots of the Republican Party? Well, the Republican Party, uh, from its very beginnings in the, before the Civil War, stood for uh, pro-market, pro-capitalist positions, as well as for uh, political uh, liberty, including the ending of uh, black slavery. So those were the principles of the uh, party, and I think in various ways it continued to uh, maintain be the uh, uh, the principles of the party, the backbone of the party. But, you know, politicians and Republican candidates had to win uh, election, and so uh, they had to accommodate to, uh, to the voters, many of them, um, you know, who were Democratic uh, in the 19th century and, uh, and the uh, 20th century. And during the New Deal, uh, there was just a massive swing of the electorate to, uh, to, to become Democrats. And so the Republicans were still pretty much uh, a, minority, uh, a minority party. Even in California, uh, where Richard Nixon was going to uh, come from, the, the, uh, during the 1930s, the California electorate uh, citizens had become heavily uh, Democratic. The first chapter you dedicate is to uh, Richard Nixon. Nixon enters Congress in 1947 uh, during a huge, um, during those midterms, a huge Republican uh, wave of victory. When Nixon entered Congress in 1947, um, how would you how would you characterize his political ideology? Yes, um, I make uh, I really challenge uh, many of the, much of the previous uh, scholarship on uh, Richard Nixon that portray him as kind of a maladjusted uh, man who had, uh, had a terrible childhood that had psychologically affected him and that he was uh, an extremist when he, came, when he won uh, election in, uh, for, for Congress. So in that chapter, I really show uh, in, in, um, in this very short book, uh, Republican Character, that actually uh, Richard Nixon uh, growing up in the Depression, um, came from a closely knit family, one that struggled during the Depression, as many uh, uh, families did in Southern California and throughout the United States. That religion was very important to, uh, to growing up for Richard Nixon. He was raised in a Quaker family, but his father had become an evangelical uh, Christian, as did Richard Nixon. Um, and then he was popular in high school, as well as college, as well as college at Whittier, Whittier College. So I show that he was, you know, well, you know, well he he was well adjusted uh, psychologically. But more importantly, I I argue uh, that uh, Richard Nixon, like many of his uh, those in his generation that fought in the Second World War was an idealist. Um, he was an idealist, uh, I think, when he entered uh, Congress, uh, even though he was being attacked by the left. He, uh, of that generation, of those who fought in World War II, uh, they, were, um, they, they thought there should be a, a world without war, and that America had, be, uh, had become a, a leading country, and it should, 
Sumik's role as a leader in international affairs, and that the economy should uh, should boom, and uh, everybody after the terrible depression could enjoy uh, uh, prosperity. So I argue that he was well-adjusted and uh, an idealist, which is contrary to much of the uh, early literature of uh, of Richard Nixon. Uh, much of it written uh, by people who despise Nixon, having been elected to the presidency in 1968, and their hatred only grew, dislike for Richard Nixon after Watergate. Now, Richard Nixon, he gets, um, he, de- he becomes uh, a senator and then vice president under um, General Dwight Eisenhower. Um, General Eisenhower is considered more of a, pragma- a pragmatist politician. And when Richard Nixon runs in 1960 and 1962, he adopts many of those much more pragmatic approach to politics. You even say in your book that Nixon becomes disillusioned with um, with ideology and party loyalty by the time he runs for governor in 1962, especially especially on the right. Where in California, you had um, you had the Dean Birch Society and other extreme right wing groups. Could you um, could you talk about why on? He became uh, he became disillusioned with that. Yes, I think there was. Uh, I don't. I think he was uh, uh, quite quite uh, pragmatic. He was. It's important to understand about in understanding Richard Nixon that he was coming from a democratic state, and so he had to appeal to uh, democratic uh, voters. But I also believe that while he was pragmatic in his uh, politics, while still being a Republican, that he was also uh, idealistic, especially on uh, international affairs and the need to avoid uh, war. His idealism at that point is often left out. But I do think that by the time he became uh, president after that very bruising 1952 campaign uh, in which he was attacked for being uh, corrupt uh, and having a secret campaign fund, I think he became very disillusioned with uh, a number of people in the uh, Republican Party. During that time, uh, when he, became, he came under attack, by fellow uh, Republicans for this uh, campaign fund, uh, he was surprised that people were who had supported him for the nomination were uh, deserting him. Right before he went on national television, Thomas Dewey, uh, who had run for president uh, as a Republican in 1948, gave him a phone call and uh, phoned him and said that he should announce that he was stepping down from the uh, selection of vice president. So by 1960, he was already being, and I think it was, I think it affected him um, in many ways, uh, personally and politically. He found himself uh, as as the most uh, despised political figure on the uh, left because of his earlier role when he was a congressman with uh, any communist investigations, specifically uh, infamous case at the time, Alger Hiss. Uh, and then uh, in 52, uh, and then again in 56, he discovered that uh, he couldn't count on uh, people within the uh, Republican uh, Party to uh, support him. 
So I think that gave him a, a hardened uh, view of politics. And I think he therefore placed a great emphasis on loyalty in his, uh, to him and his, uh, his inner circle. But he was a consummate uh, politician. I don't think uh, whether uh, whatever one thinks about Richard Nixon, the man and his uh, career, I think everybody agrees he was a, a master politician. What the best, one of the best of his uh, day, and I think uh, nobody understood national politics like Richard uh, Nixon. Uh, chapter two, you dedicate to um, Nelson Rockefeller, the former governor of New York, vice president, and uh, reluctant pre presidential candidate. Uh, can you give us a sense of Rockefeller's rise in politics and the type of Republicanism he represented? Yeah, well, I think uh, uh, referring back to uh, earlier the issue of winning Democrats, and Nelson Rockefeller. Uh, I mean, basically, was an aristocrat, uh, and I think he was uh, well-intended uh, in terms of wanting to serve the public interest. It came out of his uh, deep family uh, tradition. Uh, they were Baptist and committed to the social uh, good. Nelson Rockefeller, and he's not unlike any politician, was extremely... Uh, egotistical and decided that in order to win uh, the White House, which he felt that he could do a better job than uh, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, Richard Nixon, whom he despised, uh, he, 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 he thought the stepping stone to that was the winning the uh, New York uh, uh, governor's um, mansion, which he subsequently uh, did to show that he was a, a builder. He uh, raised taxes and began uh, pursuing an elaborate agenda, building state universities, new transportation, uh, highways, and, and, uh, and dealing with Democrats. So he was a different type of uh, politician who basically um, wanted the Republican Party to be uh, kind of democratic, uh, Democrats-like. And so it set a sharp contrast with uh, the rise of more of the conservative Sunbelt and Western uh, conservatives that were growing in strength. This was the odd provincialism that you talk about with Rockefeller. How did that? How did that ultimately? How did that ultimately square with the rest of the Republican Party? Actually, when I wrote that, uh, when Nelson uh, Rockefeller kind of provincial in his own way, um, the my editor at, uh, at University of uh, Pennsylvania Press, the, Repub the published uh, Republican character, kind of took issue with that. I think it was the copy editor, who was from New York, and New Yorkers don't like to be called uh, provincial. And I think the provinciality was kind of of two sorts. Rockefeller came from a very wealthy family. He knew everybody uh, when he was growing up of importance in uh, politics and business. But he was, um, he didn't know um, the Midwest and the, uh, the Sun Belt very well uh, and, and couldn't understand him. He, he really couldn't understand Richard Nixon and and thought people like Barry Goldwater were 
kind of hayseeds. They were yahoos. But I think the provincialism was also kind of manifesting in in uh, different kinds of ways. Um, as governor later in the uh, 60s, he was confronted in, with the uh, with the abortion bill, and uh, Catholics were um, concerned about a very liberal uh, abortion bill that was being uh, pushed through, and. Um, and he kept hearing about this guy, uh, Thomas Aquinas. And um, so he got on the phone and phoned up his aide and said, I keep hearing about this Aquinas guy. I need to meet with him. Why don't we set up a, a meeting? <laughs> and the aide explained to him, well, uh, Thomas Aquinas was a, a medieval scholar. He's been dead for centuries. <laughs> You're not going to meet with him. Nelson Rockefeller laughed, but I mean, it was kind. Of, I mean, that that I think is kind of a provincialism, even though Rockefeller gone to Dartmouth uh, College. So mm -hmm. anyway, that that's what I mean by a kind of provincialism. But I think the provincialism really was apparent in 1964 when uh, he was challenging, when uh, Barry Goldwater and Nelson Rockefeller were fighting it out and it came down to who was going to win the California primary. And, um, and Rockefeller just, you know, he didn't know how to campaign very well in California, basically. It was an attack on uh, Goldwater as an extremist. But you have a hard time uh, seeing you know, Rockefeller in Southern California and exactly appealing to Southern California uh, to re conservative Republican uh, uh, voters. So I think there was this kind of provincialism that, that comes in a strange way from growing up in a bubble of being very, very rich and uh, basically spending most of your time in, in New York. But I'm a Westerner, so maybe I was making an unnecessary uh, dig at, at uh, <laughs> New Yorkers. But I do think New Yorkers should read the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, 1960 consists mainly of the, the Nixon and Rockefeller wings of the party, but then you were talking earlier about um, the emergence of Barry Goldwater in 1964. How, how exactly did um, Barry ascend in 1964, and how did, um, how did uh, conservatism become the, the center of the 64 campaign? What's important to understanding about Barry Goldwater's rise is, which I discuss in um, Republican character, is that uh, many of the conservative leaders uh, in the Sun Belt were looking forward to, looking for a hero, there was Barry Goldwater uh, from Arizona, which was a, a pretty backwater uh, state at that point. And uh, they, they found uh, Barry Goldwater a hero. In 1960, a group of conservatives began to push him for the Republican uh, nomination. Um, and um, and they, part of that campaign, they would... Um, organized an effort to write a book, Conscience of a Conservative, um, uh, that would be ghostwritten by uh, William Buckley, who was a conservative um, public and, and publisher of the National Review. 
that was ghostwritten by his brother-in-law, and that became a bestseller. So uh, after uh, Richard Nixon's def narrow defeat in 1960 and John F. Kennedy's uh, assassination, Republicans thought it probably was unlikely they were going to win. There was a grassroots campaign to uh, push Goldwater uh, forward as a nominee. He was able to win in the California primary and then got and received the, uh, the nomination. And he was running as a vowed uh, conservative uh, in order to win the nomination. So he emerged on the scene just a kind of, you know, like much of politics was just kind of good timing on his part. Uh, it was bad timing. There. On the other hand, after getting the nomination, that he he was defeated in a in a landslide uh, election, which basically set the stage for Richard Nixon to make a political comeback and win the nomination in the White House in 1968. Nixon campaigned for Goldwater in '64 and for the Republicans. Um, uh, attained all sorts of uh, IOUs that allowed him to be successful in 68. Rockefeller, on the other hand, was completely against uh, what Goldwater, Goldwater stood for. Uh, but you write that, you maintain that Nixon and Rockefeller in a way broadened support for the Republican Party. Uh, you write their skills as politicians should not be judged solely on the races they won or lost. What do you mean by that? Yes, I mean, Richard Nixon brought in the uh, Republican Party by bringing in the, uh, what he called the silent majority. And I think, uh, you know, it was, it was the beginning of uh, both Goldwater and Richard Nixon uh, really uh, not only brought in the appeal of the Republican uh, Party, but also uh, in terms of voters, but also were going to uh, sh help shift the uh, the South, which had been heavily, uh, which had been uh, traditionally Democratic, toward uh, the Republican uh, Party. So they were both, uh, and Richard Nixon in particular, was a very uh, astute politician. Yeah, but I think it needs to be emphasized about Richard Nixon that I think his background, growing up in California. Coming from a middle-class uh, family, uh, he, he came to know the average Americans, uh, average American, and he, uh, as um, as senator and later as vice president, he he campaigned for uh, Republican candidates. He traveled around the country, and I think he had a very good feel for what uh, average Americans were uh, thinking. So he appealed to them both on Republican principles, but also uh, on their passions and anxieties as uh, average uh, Americans. Um, and I think I think that's often left out of uh, the Richard Nixon uh, Richard Nixon story of his understanding of average voters. And you know, I think um, to be able to understand. National uh, politics on a national level, and understand voters uh, without, by the way, great deal of uh, uh, polling at that time and surveys and all the analytics, big data analytics, really is is quite remarkable uh, 
uh, for any politician, and, and Richard Nixon was was uh, extraordinary in his understanding of of voters and and, and national uh, politics and par and party politics in the Republican Party. Fast forward to 1980, um, Ronald Reagan's revolution re represented the ascendancy of conservatives, uh, conservatism in American politics. Uh, how, how was Reagan able to achieve what Goldwater couldn't? Richard Nixon, as, as I argue and, and show in Republican character, was able to combine kind of the practice of politics, the pragmatism that's necessary to be a successful candidate, and politician and uh, an elected official, along with uh, with principles. So, I describe Ronald Reagan as a principled pragmatist. Uh, he had core principles which he stuck to as governor uh, and then as president. But he was extraordinary, extraordinary uh, politician, overcoming uh, differences personality differences in his campaigns uh, and, his, uh, and, and his executive offices, uh, overcoming factions within the uh, Republican Party, uh, and, and working with Democrats both uh, in, when he was governor of California and then later as, uh, as president. But at the same time, he held uh, kind of core principles. Um, the government needed to be downsized. He thought that that was necessary uh, for uh, political liberty. He believed uh, one mechanism was to lower taxes for average Americans so they can enjoy and control their own wealth. And he also was uh, adamant that uh, and stuck to his core principles that America needed to be uh, a world leader uh, and needed to have, as he put it, peace through uh, strength. And so I think he was, he kind of combined the pragmatism of a Richard Nixon and uh, the principles of uh, a Barry Goldwater. So I think he's an example of, of a man of principle, a man who could practice politics and not portray his principle, and had a temperament that was, that was, uh, that was allowed him to, uh, uh, to be a successful, uh, successful politician and president. The character of the Republican Party today, judging from the four figures that you illustrate in the, in the book, Richard Nixon, Nelson Rockefeller, Rockefeller, Barry Goldwater, and Ronald Reagan. Um, whose whose legacy uh, do you think pre predominates, or, or is it a combination, as you illustrated with Ronald Reagan, of uh, of all of the above? I think we're obviously in a very highly polarized political situation. Voters see on both the both the Republican and Democratic parties seem to be. Uh, wanting a litmus test on who's ideolo ideologically uh, pure. So uh, conservatives are arguing, you know, who, whether uh, uh, Donald Trump is a true conservative or an opportunist or a buffoon or whatever. Meanwhile, progressives are arguing who's the uh, purest progressive they could put forward. Uh, le left out of this equation is 
uh, our issues of winning elections while maintaining uh, those principles that uh, some the activists hold so uh, so dear. I think my own view is that if you want to make everything about uh, the purity of uh, principle, then you should be in a monastery. At the same time, if you're uh, think that politics is all about opportunism, you shouldn't call yourself a leader. So you need to be able to combine principle and pragmatism. So the question is today is whether um, President Trump has the temperament to be a president and whether he's going to be able to uh, show that he, that he has the practical skills to work with people within his own party as well as uh, when it's necessary, reaching out to Democrats to pass legislation, and whether he has uh, core principles that what Republicans stand for, that is economic uh, freedom, economic advancement, equal opportunity for, all, for everyone, and leadership in the world. So I think that, you know, right now the, uh, the verdict is, is still out on this, but I think we're undergoing a really a, a new, we're undergoing a, uh, a change in American politics um, with a lot with activism, grassroots activism on the left and the right, and through grassroots activism, I believe the political parties have responded in the past. Now they're going to have to respond, both the Democrats and the Republicans, to really a, a new era of, of politics. So I think that's where we are. And, we're in a very volatile uh, period in our history. It's, politics is always vol volatile. I think this is really a acute period in our politics uh, where a lot of voters feel kind of in a twilight zone and, and a lot of discord. And we'll see whether the political leadership of the Democrats and the Republicans are going to be able to respond in such a way that uh, provide a sense of order um, and to the uh, to the um, to their citizens and the people they represent. The book is Republican Character from Nixon to Reagan. Dr. Critchlow, thank you so much for your time. Yes, well, thank you very much, and I, I love the uh, Richard. I did a lot of research on many occasions at uh, Richard Nixon Library, and I urge all your listeners to uh, to visit the Richard Nixon. Uh, Presidential Library. It's, it's a wonderful, uh, great location, too. So have a good day. Thank you.